the following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the hosts or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Good night. Welcome to the Catherine Zox Show. This informative and entertaining show will start your mornings off on the right foot. Here's your host, Catherine Zox, your social worker with the microphone. Good morning, I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone, and you are listening to The Catherine Zox Show on VoiceAmericaVariety.com and World Talk Radio. Joining me this morning is Rachel Pyers. She's author of Diet Enlightenment, The Real Secret to Weight Loss. And Rachel is a Boston University graduate, as many of you know, so am I. So we have a lot in common. She's a contributing writer for Livestrong.com, weight loss blogs, a weight loss advisor, a new mom, and additionally, she's a dancer, a second-degree black belt, and an advanced certified scuba diver. Welcome to the show. Nice to have you on the show this morning, Rachel. Oh, thank you so much. It's great to be here. Well, you are one talented young woman, young mom, and of course, diet enlightenment, the real secret to weight loss. I mean, as we talked a little bit before the show started, Rachel, I mean, weight loss to me is one of the biggest uh, health problems that we have in America. So you have, I'm going to say, not necessarily stumbled on something, but you actually have a proven record for weight loss, and you yourself obviously have done it and struggled with weight for a long time. So let's get into that. Um, most people think I, you know, they start, they go on some kind of a diet, they think it's a good diet, the Atkins diet, Weight Watchers, whatever it is, and then slowly they slip back, you know, they gain a pound, two pounds, five pounds, and they're back where they started. How is your diet different? Well, that's, you know, it's a great question. Um, and I always tell, um, you know, clients to think about it like this. If you want to keep the weight off permanently, then you have to lose the weight eating the sorts of foods that you like to eat or will go back to eating after you lose the weight. Because, for example, people that go on the paleo diet or the Atkins diet or, you know, a, a specific elimination diet, you can only do that for so long. Eventually, you know, you're going to want to, you know, um, reincorporate, you know, the foods you like to eat, whether it's carbs or sweets or, you know, indulgences once in a while. And because it, you haven't really learned how to, you know, count your calories or deal with portion control, it's inevitable to gain the weight back. But what if their favorite foods, and you just started to mention it, what if their favorite foods are French fries and ice cream and chocolate cake? And so how can you incorporate that into the Enlightenment diet and still lose weight? Well, it's funny. I'm guilty of all those. I always say in my book that this book is about how to lose weight, not how to be, not, not about how to eat healthy. And, you know, a lot of people don't like to hear this, but the truth is you don't need to eat healthy whatsoever in order to lose weight. Now, I give tons of reasons of why you'll want to, you know, including many of the healthy foods are actually very low in calories, 
But, you know, I could put someone on a McDonald's ice cream diet, and if it was the right amount of calories, they would lose weight, um, albeit they would be pretty hungry and probably very sick. But, you know, I think a lot of people forget that at the end of the day, any successful diet that works does so because of a reduction in calories. Um, you know, so despite all the hype about low-carb, low-fat, and all these gimmicks, it's all about the calories. Um, there was a recent New England Journal a medicine study that came out in February 2013 that said exactly that. Um, and also there was another BBC study that investigated Atkins and South Beach and tried to examine why there was success. And what they found was it wasn't that, um, you know, eliminating carbs was a magic solution. It was that, you know, going for more protein-rich foods kind of turned off hunger, which in turn made people eat less calories. So for somebody like me who loves bread, loves macaroni and cheese, you know, wants to have a balance and indulge their food, this is the perfect type of diet because I can eat all of those things while losing weight. It's calories in, calories out is what you're saying. But Absolutely. It, it, and, and then if I'm hearing you right, you're also saying that you can incorporate some of the foods that we've, the, the chocolates, the sweets, the carbs. It doesn't really matter, but it's good to have a balance anyway, yes. but it doesn't mean eliminating them. So tell us your story because I know you're a new I a new mom, uh, it's difficult to lose weight after you have a baby, even if you gain like, the, uh, what is it, 25 pounds you're supposed to gain and most yes. women gain more, but then the baby weighs five pounds and what is with the other 20? <laughs> right, actually. And it's funny because in recent years, there, there's a push more by OBs to stick to the 25-pound, 30-pound weight gain. In the past, I think it was more, you know, acceptable to gain or encouraged to gain, you know, 40, 50 pounds. But nowadays, I was surprised to learn this when I got pregnant that they really want you for the health of the mom and the health of the baby to kind of, you know, um, you know, less an amount of weight that you gain. So for me, um, it's funny, it all started when I was about 15 years old. I was a competitive martial artist and doing all these crazy crash diets to make weight classes. And so I started having very unhealthy relationships with food and crash dieting and you know, this this eating behavior, binge eating, emotional eating, kind of, I brought that with me, you know, to be you and a little bit after. So for a period of about 10 years until I hit, um, I think it was about 25 years old, I would gain 30 pounds, lose 30 pounds, gain 10 pounds, lose 10 pounds, you know. This cycle went on. I'm not even joking for a full decade. Um, but I think that's pretty typical. I think that's typical, particularly of women. I think it is a very, you know, gain 20, gain 10, lose it, yep. up to about 30 pounds, and that kind of roller coaster back and forth. So I don't think it sounds odd at all. Actually, I think it sounds very typical. But I, you know, and it's, I guess gaining the weight and losing the weight and being on a diet was frust- was very frustrating. But I think the worst part was I was getting obsessed with dieting. I mean, people from the outside didn't know because they would see, oh, you know, she's she's on a diet, she's losing ten pounds, not that big of a deal. It's not, you know, a hundred pounds or two hundred pounds. But I was trying dieting pills. I mean, I think I was on the verge of an eating disorder. So even I think a lot of people don't realize even people that are struggling with maybe ten pounds just because it's not that much weight doesn't mean that they're not, you know, going down a path of being obsessed and, you know, doing very unhealthy eating habits. So, you know, overcoming all of that for me was just as important as losing the weight and keeping it off. What was the turning point? At what point did you say, I've had enough of this or I'm so, I, I see I, might have, I could develop an eating disorder or I'm struggling or this isn't fun or it's not healthy. So something must have happened. 
Yeah, so I had moved back from California, um, back to New Jersey. Um, I think I was about 25 years old at the time. This was five, this was five years ago. And I just was fed up with, you know, Weight Watchers and Atkins and, you know, every diet. I, I think I've tried every diet out there. And so I said, I'm going to do some research. So, you know, I started to really investigate. And that's when I found the truth, which was, calories are calories. And, you know, uh, plans like Weight Watchers are great because they're essentially calorie counting programs, but fiber doesn't matter. I mean, it's good for you and it'll keep you full, but it's not necessary. Fat, the same thing. So I said, you know what, I'm going to design my own customized calorie reduction plan based on the foods that I like to eat. So that week I wanted McDonald's. I had McDonald's. Um, you know, the next day I was like, I want to eat really healthy. So, you know, I made, you know, lots of homemade organic foods. I basically just designed a meal based on all the things I love to eat. And I started thinking about, okay, just because you need to eat less calories doesn't mean you need to eat less food. So I started coming up with unique ideas for swapping ingredients for lower calorie items. And I lost, I think at this time it was 30 pounds. And at the, at the end of every single day, I had calories left over. I was eating so much food that I didn't even feel like I was on a diet. And then when it came time to maintain it, it felt almost effortless. So I was like, control. I have to share this with everyone. I couldn't believe how easy it was. All right, so you created this diet for yourself, obviously successful. Uh, but you had mentioned earlier per portion control because you can't just keep eating and eating huge quantities of even kale. I mean, you have to have, don't you have to have some kind of a... a Absolutely. Yes. Yeah. So I talk about in the book, um, there's a chapter called How to Listen to Your Body. And I say that, you know, a lot of, you know, everyone has these natural cues if, if you can learn to pay attention to them, you know, knowing when to stop, knowing when you're hungry. Um, but people turn these off. And I was one of the biggest offenders. You know, I would probably be satisfied or full, but I would see the food and want to continue eating it. Or it would be one of my days where I was cheating and off the diet. And I would say, well, since I'm going to go back on tomorrow, I might as well eat everything in sight and binge eat. And so people start getting in this, you know, rhythm of when I'm on my diet, I'm great. I'm perfect. And when I'm off my diet, I'm going to binge and I'm going to, you know, overindulge. And it's really that that's destructive and that that prevents people from losing the weight. I mean, if one day you go 100 calories over your budget, it's not even going to make a difference whatsoever. It's the overreaction of, well, I ruined it, so let me go, you know, consume a thousand calories as a response that, that really hurts your progress. So and don't get into the all or nothing thing. I think and that's easy, you know, like stuffing and starving kind of thing, which is I think what you're talking about, or you yes. make excuses for yourself. Now, I have a great, I have a great analogy that a lot of people love. Um, I say, you know, binge eating is kind of like going to the mall with $200 and saying, you know, I'm going to stick to this budget and then maybe going over that budget and spending an extra $100 and then getting so upset at yourself, going to the Louis Vuitton store and maxing out your credit cards. I mean, when you look at it like that, you kind of realize it's kind of silly for me to have this overreaction and, you know, go binging. So when I started to think about it like that, I realized, you know what, I can go over, you know, my calories one day without ruining my program. And I changed my thinking from there's no such thing as cheating instead of making choices. I like that, making choices. And I think another word that comes up as I'm listening to you is 
deprivation. We don't really have to think about deprivation as you describe it because, yeah, we can have a little thing of French fries if we like French fries or we can have whatever is unique to us that we like that maybe wouldn't be considered necessarily healthy, but you can have it all in moderation, incorporating it into also a healthy diet. Is that what you, so you yes. don't feel deprived? No, you hit that on the head exactly. Um, I really think that a weight loss program that's going to work long term has to be flexible and it has to accommodate, for example, let's say you're at work and so they're celebrating somebody's birthday and you want to have a piece of cake. Guess what? You know, have that piece of cake and then adjust your calories for the day accordingly. Or you might sit there and say, you know what, I'm going to the Cheesecake Factory tonight after work and I know I'm getting this for this amount of calories. I'm, g- I'm going to skip it. Um, you know, so it's all about making choices. And one other technique that I find really helpful is I call, you know, putting it off. So let's say I am craving um, something like uh, a delicious high-calorie meal, and I don't have enough calories that day. I say, well, you know what? I'm not going to have it today. I'm going to have it tomorrow. And then I find a way to fit it into my calories tomorrow. Now, when that time comes along, you may not even want it anymore, but if you do, you'll fit it in. And it's kind of a way of... Um, you know, being able to have it, just not at that time. And it gets rid of that whole siren call that food represents to people. You know, when you're not supposed to have something and it's off limits and you want it even more, with this program it's like, eh, I'll have it today, fit it in, or, you know, maybe I'll have it tomorrow. It really takes the intensity out of the whole, you know, weight loss. I like that. I mean, that fits into the way I eat. And I was, and I'm also thinking as you're describing it, it sounds like mindful eating. You're mindful of what you eat and how you eat and when you eat it. But it's not, I can't have this ever. And you, and I still go back into the point of like, you can just incorporate it into your diet when it's appropriate. So, okay, take us, how much do you weigh? Let's use you as the example. How many calories do you have a day? Sure. Um, you know, put a face on it for us. How do you Okay, well, let me start off saying that I'm, I'm very short, so I weigh a little bit less um, because I'm five foot two. I weigh 102 pounds. Um, now, normally, um, five foot two, 102 pounds, I would have about 1,400 calories a day, um, 1,400, 1,500 to maintain my weight, but because I'm still nursing, I throw on about extra, you know, I, I'm... My, my son's almost a year now, and I'm almost finished nursing, so I throw in about an extra, you know, 300 to 400 calories a day. Yeah, 300 to 400, that's what they say. And I think in the beginning when you're nursing, you can even add a couple more. I mean, cause Exactly, they usually exactly. Nursing. But it's yeah. funny. I've had a lot of people say to me, well, doesn't, doesn't nursing just make you lose the baby weight? And I'm like, no, if anything, it makes me more hungry when I first started out. So, you know, something like that can be great for new moms to help them lose weight, but it's not going to make them lose it. You know, they really need to, I, you know, after... My son started started sleeping a little bit better, you know, and I said, um, okay, I got the nursing under control. I'm going to start reducing my calories, and that's when I did it, and that's when I lost the 25 pounds. So it took me, you know, a full four months, um, but I wanted to do it slowly, and I wanted to do it without affecting supply issues. Um, so, yeah, nursing is great, but it's not going to make you lose the baby weight. No, you can eat twice as much or three times as much because you are so hungry when you're nursing. You're absolutely right. So, okay, so give us the, your, let's start with breakfast. I mean, be real specific. You're, you're, you're tiny. You're a five foot, what did you say, two. five foot two, 102 pounds. And I'm kind of in that category too. I'm, I used to be, I'm shrinking, but I'm like, say, five, <laughs> five, five feet and a half, and I weigh about 106 pounds, but, and eat 12 to 1300 calories a day, which is, 
to maintain. Yep, that's exactly what you need to yeah. be doing. That's perfect. Yeah. And what's funny is, you know, this kind of stinks, but the older you get, the less calories you need. So I put, when I put, um, you know, diff, like, like my dad or, or an aunt on this program, and even if, the, you know, for example, my aunt who was the same size as me, the same height as me, she got less calories, and we were joking it's unfair, but, you know, just that's unfortunately like when you're figuring out your calories, you know, it's just like if you're a guy, you get way more calories just for being a guy. It's the same thing. As you get older, older, you really need less calories. Exactly. I think every decade, if you can say, every, you, have, you have to eat less and less calories. Yep. Um, your metabolism slows down. Um, so, yeah, I think that, is a, that definitely is an issue. But, okay, so breakfast. What does Rachel have for breakfast? Okay, well, um, here's a great example. So I love tacos, so I make breakfast burritos a lot of time. Now, keep in mind, I'm not a huge breakfast eater. I prefer to eat the majority of my calories at lunch or dinner, but I would never skip breakfast. So here's an example of something I would do. I'd take like a corn tortilla or a flour tortilla. I'll make, you know, either egg whites or scrambled eggs, sprinkle a little bit of light mozzarella cheese. Um, Sometimes I put like a slice or two of turkey bacon in there so I have a delicious breakfast burrito. Then um, I'll slice up some cantaloupe or some strawberries on the side, and then I'm a big coffee drinker, so I'll either drink coffee with a little bit of creamer in it or sometimes I'll go to Starbucks. um, And, you know, that's one example. Other days I'll have a bowl of Cheerios with skim milk and a banana. Um, So, I mean, I'm not having small meals, but I'm not consuming a lot of calories for breakfast. And you have, it sounds like breakfast has some taste to it and you vary the breakfast. So you're not eating the same thing every day. Yeah. Yeah, especially the taco. That sounds delicious. But okay, now let's go to lunch. What would lunch be or an example of a couple lunches for you? Sure. So one of my favorite lunches that I make is pizza. That's another one of my favorite foods. And, And I always say on this program, don't change what you eat what you like to eat, that is, just get creative. So, you know, I used this example the other day. I could call Domino's and order a medium-thin crust pizza for, you know, almost 1,400 calories, or I could make something very similar in size from home with lower-calorie ingredients for, like, one-third of the calories. So what I do is I take, like, a large flatbread, um, flatbread pizza for maybe about, like, 200 calories. I put on, you know, organic tomato sauce, sprinkle light mozzarella cheese, shredded chicken, um, garlic, a few other toppings. I'm a big fan of hot sauce. I'll have this huge pizza, and it'll be under 500 calories for the whole thing. Um, So I eat that probably like three to four times a week. Creative, creative, creative. That's what it sounds like. Just be creative with the kinds of foods that you like. Um, I like that. That's a great example. Oh, thank you. Okay, well, let's go to dinner, and then I want to talk about the uh, the food industry because it is a multi billion dollar dieting industry, um, and so I want you to kind of comment on where we're going with that and why it's not successful yet. We're paying billions of dollars to lose weight, um, but okay, let's just but dinner. I'll give you a quick dinner one. So. Okay, give us um, a- Let's say we're going to go out for dinner. We might go to the Cheesecake Factory, um, which, you know, it's funny, their regular menu is one of the most high-calorie menus that I've ever seen, but they developed this skinny-licious menu with tons of food, you know, 
burgers and pastas and, and amazing dishes that are all under 600 calories or less. So one of my favorite items that I might get for dinner is something called the Skinnylicious Chicken Pasta. Now, this dish is so big that I can't even ever finish it myself. It's chicken and I think fusilli pasta and tomatoes and like a light white wine sauce. So I can usually, because I know when to stop and not overeat, I usually can eat like about three-fourths of it. But that's a great example of, you know, just a great dinner. And keep in mind, somebody, I'm getting so good at getting the like more bang for my calories that I would never go under, you know, 1,100 calories. But even if somebody wanted to experiment and said, you have only 900 calories to work with, I can come up with a menu with so much food, delicious food, for so little calories that I would be full throughout the day. So I just want to, you know, reemphasize the point of just because you need to watch your calories or eat less calories doesn't mean you need to eat less food. Rachel, would this work for somebody who is 100 pounds overweight or 150 pounds overweight? Because I see so many people unfortunately, who look to be at least that, let's say 100 pounds overweight. I mean, can you start with your enlightenment diet? Absolutely. I mean, the science of weight loss is all the same. So, you know, somebody 100, 150 pounds can definitely have great success. And, I mean, I'm going to talk about this a minute when I answer your question about the dieting industry, but my book is kind of unique because I say stuff like, hey, you don't have to exercise. Now, exercise is amazing for your mind and your body, and it can be a great way to burn extra calories. But, um, you know, all the research says that weight loss is, I mean, exercise is not that important for weight loss. Same thing with eating healthy. You know, it's kind of the same concept of it's great for you. Many of the foods that are, you know, healthy are very low in calories, but you don't have to do it. So for people who are, you know, 100 pounds and over, they're going to be less likely to do all three things, which is exercise, eat healthy, and, you know, follow a calorie reduction program. That That's hard for most people to do. So if I can get them to at least follow the calorie reduction program, even if they're not really eating that healthy or working out at the end of the day, they're going to be thinner. And I have a few examples of people that I put on my program, one that lost 70 pounds that I have in mind. He lost weight just through diet. And then after he lost the weight, he felt so good. You know, he got endurance. He was confident. He started exercising, lifting weights, you know, and, and never looked back. And then I have another individual, a woman who lost about 50 pounds, um, same deal, kind of just focusing on, in this case, exercise and, you know, calorie reduction, but not really eating healthy. I think she ate a lot of fast food and a lot of those types of meals. After she lost the weight and got really thin, she realized, oh, my God, if I start eating healthier, my skin and my hair and my nails will look better. And so she started then going all organic. So, you know, it's funny. Um, I would love for people to do all three at once, but if you can only do one and add the two later, you know, that works just as well. Yeah, I think that's very practical because it, it sort of, it, it's an evolution. It evolves. And like you say, it takes, the diet takes on a life of its own because you, you start just automatically feeling better. And I think if you start getting thinner, you're going to want to exercise because you'll feel more like exercising. But if you kind of throw that at somebody all at once, hey, you have to lose 75 pounds, you have to exercise, you have to eat healthy foods, and you have to watch your calories, it's like, whoa, I, I'm not, I can't do that, or at least not for a long period of time. 
That's so true. And I have a funny example of, you know, sometimes I, I, I see people and, you know, they're, they're really trying to lose, like, let's say 100 pounds, for example. I see them running in the morning, which is great. I mean, great for your mind and great for your body. I see them having these huge salads for lunch. Um, and yet, for example, I might be having like a hamburger and fries or I might be having a slice of pizza. What they don't realize is they're doing all this exercise in vain because they're not counting their calories. And so they're choosing a salad, um, you know, for example, that might be twice as many calories as I'm eating. So they're not bringing this mindfulness to eating that you, that you brought up earlier. You know, it's kind of dangerous to go on a diet and not count your calories because you might be spending a lot of time and energy working out, choosing salads, and you might not lose any weight simply because you're not really reducing your calories enough. Yeah, you do see a lot of people doing that, and often I'll see people who are 75, 100 pounds overweight, and they look to me as they're jogging and running and sweating that they're going to have a heart attack. I mean, it's kind of frightening to watch, and it, it seems to me it's, it, you know, as you say, sort of overkill in the beginning. Take it gradually. Absolutely. Uh, yeah, but... All right, that said, let's take a look at the industry uh, because it is a multi-billion dollar dieting industry and people seem to just keep going back, doing the same old thing and getting the same old results and spending hundreds, you know, hundreds if not thousands of dollars um, and they don't end up losing weight. Yeah, I mean, and I I don't want to say it's a scam. You know, I don't think it's a conspiracy, but I do think the majority of diets out there are very, very difficult to stick to, and they're not designed to help you keep the weight off long term. Now, if somebody truly does not like bread and pasta, they might have success on you know a, a low carb type of diet for the rest of their life. But for somebody like me, I mean, I I love macaroni cheese, I love pasta, and I also eat very healthy. I really do, but I love. Food, and I'm a total foodie. So going on a program like that, these you know elimination diets, that would never work for me long term. So um, you know whether it's my program or whether it's someone else's program, I think if you want to know if a diet's going to be successful, you have to sit there and say, is this something I can maintain permanently, and does it allow me to eat the type of food, as I said before, that I like to eat, and will go back to eating after I lose the weight. And also, doesn't it have to, this is sort of adding to what you're saying, it has to fit your lifestyle. Let's say you are uh, working and you travel a lot, so you have to be able to incorporate this into eating out a lot, eating at restaurants, eating at business meetings. Uh, You have to think about what you're, if you're a stay-at-home mom, that's something different. You may have more opportunities to not only be creative, but you can go out and buy the foods you want. So people have different lifestyles that they have to incorporate your diet into. Yes, and I'm so glad you brought that up because I always say to people, it's never been easier than to calorie count nowadays. Um, there was actually some legislation, I think, that was passed in New York City that requires um, restaurants with, you know, mostly chain restaurants with a certain number amount of um, locations to make their calories known. So you go anywhere from Applebee's to Cheesecake Factory to Chipotle, you can look up the calories online so easily and plan out your day. You know, 20 years ago, you had to pull out this, you know, physical uh, calorie, I call it the calorie Bible, and, you know, figure out what you're going to eat. Today, you just look it up on your smartphone, you check the internet. I mean, it has never been easier to count your calories and be thin. 
Yeah, I'm glad you brought that up because I think people make a lot of excuses still. Well, I don't know how many calories. I really didn't realize that this wasn't good for me or that it had so many calories. You know, that doesn't work anymore, and you're right. In New York City, in New York, I don't know if it's all through New York State, but there are, you, they do have the calories besides certain foods in the fast food restaurants. And oh, it's yeah, kind of it's funny. shocking. I went to, I would tell you, I went to California and I went into Baja Fresh, one of my favorite, I guess, fast food restaurants, and the calories were up on the menu. I didn't even have to look them up. I thought that was remarkable. Yeah, and so it gets rid of all the excuses, right, and the denial. And, I mean, you have to really face it, right? This is it. This is how many calories there are. I mean, I was surprised in just a plain bagel at, I forgot one of the fast food places, how many cal- it had 350 calories, close to 400 calories with our, so, you know, it really makes you, it makes you have to be mindful about what you're eating. Couple minutes left, I want to mention the website, um, livestrong.com, where you blog, and also your website, uh, dietenlightenment.com, so listeners can go to both of those websites, but one last comment on the, um, dieting industry, um, Oh, oh, basically, you know, just remember that um, at the end of the day, the low-fat gimmicks, the low-carb gimmicks, the elimination diets, all these things, they, if they work, it's not because of those gimmicks. It's because of the reduction in calories. And, you know, if, they re- if people really do their research, you know, look in New England Journal of Medicine, look in the right publications, they'll see that it's really all about the calories. And, you know... The industry doesn't want to admit that because it's a multi-billion dollar industry and if everyone lost the weight for good and kept it up, where would the money be? At the end of the day, it's a business. So, you know, as I said before, whether it's my program or another program, you have to be a smart consumer. So, you know... Be smart, be wise, be mindful when it comes to eating. Make sure you don't, you know, um, underestimate the importance of calories and enjoy food. You know, you can really free yourself from all the emotional eating, you know, if you, if you go on a program that's flexible and realistic like I did. So, you know, I wish everyone the best of luck. And, um, you know, everyone that's tried my program has just had such great success. So um, I really think people will enjoy the book. It's, it's funny. It's inspirational. A lot of personal stories in there and just great information. Yeah, I love it when there are personal stories because I think we can all relate to that. I mean, uh, so we can buy the book at, um, at bookstores everywhere online. Yeah, I believe that um, it's available on Amazon and in Barnes & Noble. And then also um, I have a Facebook page where I share lots of great low-calorie recipes, inspirational stories, um, you know, new dieting studies that come out with commentary, share that. And then you can um, get the book on the, web, on the Facebook page, too. That's facebook.com slash dietenlightenment. Um, but, you know, it, it, it's definitely a fun, inspirational read. So I, I think a lot of people will really enjoy it. Great. Great having you on the show today, Rachel. Thanks so much. Oh, good thanks luck. again. Yeah. It was a pleasure good talking to you. Great book. Thanks I'm again. Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone, and you're listening to The Catherine Zox Show on VoiceAmericaVariety.com and World Talk Radio. Don't go away. We'll be back in a minute. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com. 
Now there's a new destination for video content, voiceamerica.tv, just like our radio channels and so much more. Voice America Variety, Health and Wellness, Business, Sports, Green Talk, Power Up Motorsports, and 7th Wave Network now have their own video channel components. Plus, check out exclusive programming, including movies, music, educational courses, science and history, current events, and short features. High-definition, premier-quality programs available 24-7, voiceamerica.tv. If you think you've seen online TV like this before, let us surprise you. There are over 140 million products manufactured worldwide. It is impossible to know the ingredients in these products, especially those made overseas. Stan Salat, creator of the HSF Mark and the Counterfeit Mark Alliance, is the host of People to People, working together for your safety. Stan believes in our right to know the type and amount of hazardous materials in consumer products and whether they are counterfeit. Find out how you can protect yourself every Tuesday at 2 p.m. Pacific Time, 5 p.m. Eastern on Voice America Variety. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com. You're listening to The Catherine Zox Show. If you'd like to join our conversation this morning, call now. The toll-free number is 866-472-5788. That number again is 866-472-5788. We're back. I'm Catherine Zox. I'm your social worker with a microphone. And you're listening to The Catherine Zox Show on VoiceAmericaVariety.com and World Talk Radio. My next guest is Dr. David Cassaret. His new book is Shocked, Adventures in Bringing Back the Recently Dead. Welcome to the show, Dr. Cassaret. Thanks. It's great to be here. Well, you're a physician, a researcher, an associate professor at the University of Pennsylvania, Perlman School of Medicine. Uh, you've conducted studies on, what, 10,000 patients written for JAMA, the New England uh, Journal of Medicine, and I could go on and on. But we're going to be talking about the book today. Now, so when you're talking about, I have to say, the title, you know, Bringing Back the Dead, at first it sounds like hocus pocus. What is he talking about? But here's this professor at the University of Pennsylvania, the medical school. Uh, so it has to be real science. Um, so, I mean, that's my, that was my initial reaction. So, and I'm sure that there are others who have questioned you as well. Sure, um, especially since what we're talking about really is amazing. You, you, you say hocus pocus, but some of what we can do really looks an awful lot like magic. I tell the story in the, the book of a girl named Michelle Funk who uh, was two and a half years old when she fell into a creek and, and drowned outside of Salt Lake City in Utah and uh, for an hour was underwater. And rescuers tried to revive her when, when they pulled her out, but she had no heartbeat, wasn't breathing. They tried for another two hours, so three hours, not breathing, no heartbeat, no sign of life, until they finally managed to get her heart started again. She started breathing, and she left the hospital a couple of months later um, and just got married, actually, a couple of years ago. So if, that, if that's not magic, I don't know what it is. That's, that's really pretty amazing. Yeah, it is also amazing, but when we're talking, doctor, when we're talking about dead, I mean, was she actually dead, or are there some people who appear to be dead, but there are, they're still, I mean, are they really dead in the sense that I'm thinking, like, you're gone, you're dead? <laughs> That's a great question, and it's a question that that uh, a lot of people right now are wrestling with. A lot of the... Uh, 
Um, the paramedics that I, I spent some time, I tell the story in the book of riding with paramedics as they go out on visits to, to uh, do CPR and, and revive patients and emergency room docs who do the same thing. People, when they talk about somebody who was dead, would use these air quotes um, as they're talking to me. They'd say, well, she was, she was dead, in quotes, but then we brought her back. So these are people who are not technically dead. So we're not arguing about the, what the definition of dead is. The, the definition of dead means there's really no brain function whatsoever. Um, so these are people who don't meet that criteria yet, but these are people who have not had a heartbeat, are not breathing, in Michelle's case, for three hours, um, who somehow managed to come back. And, and so the boundary between life and death is becoming pretty confusing. Um, and the, the people who deal with that the most, I think, are paramedics who arrive at a scene, they see somebody who hasn't had a pulse for 45 minutes, and then they're forced with the decision, uh, or their, their physician backup is forced with the decision of, well, do we, do we try to resuscitate this person? And, and if so, for how long? When do they become dead? When do we stop? Well, is the reason for that because we have, or you have as a scientist, as a physician, you have more tools available to do the resuscitation? Like maybe 10 or 15 years ago, certain tools weren't available to you to bring the person back? Yeah, that's absolutely true. We have more tools now than ever before, and we're more successful than ever before. I spent some time in, in shock talking about the, the distant past of resuscitation, which, which actually started back in the, the 1700s. Um, but back then, our idea of a successful resuscitation technique was something like uh, putting people's feet in boiling water or beating them with sticks or rubbing them with cloth or my own personal favorite, which I actually tried uh, and describe in the book, was taking a drowning victim and throwing him over the back of a trotting horse in hopes of reviving him. So those were the sorts of things that, that were happening 200 years ago, and it's not surprising that it really didn't work. <laughs> did but, not work. That's the shock therapy, or I, I guess you would call it, but okay, so that didn't work. So now bring us, that was in the 1700s? Right, and so fortunately for all of us, we've come a long way since the, the days of feet in boiling water and, and being thrown over the back of a horse. Um, some of the, the advances these days include things like defibrillators, which many people are familiar with because if you've watched any television medical show, you've, you've seen people shocked back to life. Mm-hmm. Um, well, they're in airplanes and airports mm-hmm. and, and restaurants, aren't they? I mean, they're in a lot of uh, public facilities, so I assume just you know, your average person can use a defibrillator. They are everywhere, as, as you say, although not quite everywhere. We can come back to that in a moment. There are uh, simplified versions of these defibrillators that, you're right, anybody can use with a little bit of basic instruction. I tell the story in, in shock of going to a shopping mall uh, near where I live in Philadelphia and spending an afternoon with employees from uh, the nearby McDonald's and Victoria's Secret and Macy's as they learned how to, to use these uh, automatic, they're called automatic external defibrillators. And these, these are appearing everywhere. Um, and they've done an awful lot to save lives. Should we um, all have one in our house? Because if you're saying we have the ability to resuscitate with these maybe more uh, simpler ones than maybe that they have, uh, that a paramedic that a, would have or an EMT person, um, should we have them in our house? Use them? That's a great question, and some people, I think, do have them in their houses. Um, the problem, though, is that they only work if you have a cardiac arrest that's due to what's called a shockable rhythm, meaning a heart rhythm that responds to um, a shock, and not 
every cardiac arrest uh, is um, the result of a rhythm that, that could be shocked back. One of the, the classic examples is what's called asystole, which isn't really a rhythm at all. It's just a flat line. And so if you have a cardiac arrest that's due to that particular problem, a flat line with no cardiac activity, those sorts, of, those sorts of problems don't respond to a shock. You can apply all the shocks you want and you won't get the, the heart restarted. That's another way in which television differs from, from real life. On a, a television show, people would have a flat line and then magically be brought back to life by a shock, but it doesn't work that way. And the interesting thing, though, is that when you have a cardiac arrest at home, you're much less likely to have one of these quote-unquote shockable rhythms. So even though if you have a shockable rhythm and you have a cardiac arrest in public, you might have as much as a one in three chance of, of surviving and, and going on to live, your chances of having a shockable rhythm and being shocked back to life if you have a cardiac arrest at home, for reasons we don't quite understand, are much, much lower. So it is tempting to think that everybody should have their own espresso maker at home <laughs> and their own nice refrigerator and their own defibrillator. Uh, but the, the benefits really probably are not are not that significant. So it doesn't quite work that way. What about, and if, of course, I, I, I'm sure you thought about this, uh, Joan Rivers, because that's what, as you're describing, um, you know, the process of defibrillating. In her case, and she was in a physician, she was in a, a what a clinic, uh, in a medical facility. Um, how does that fit in? Can you talk a little bit about that or comment on it, I guess, her inability to be shocked back to life? Yeah, so I, I, I don't know medical details. Um, I probably know even, even less than, than many of your listeners do um, about her particular situation. In general, though, um, it's worth noting that um, we do a lot of procedures now in settings uh, that are much less intensive than they were even 10 or 15 years ago. Um, 10 or 15 years ago, even fairly minor procedures like the one that I believe she was having um, that involved a, an endoscopy a tube down her throat um, would have happened in um, an operating suite in a hospital uh, with anesthesiologist standing by. And uh, those sorts of procedures really have moved out into the community now. Um, people are not hospitalized for those procedures. They're happening in, in outpatient surgery centers. And, um, and that's been made possible, I think, at least in part, by the availability of defibrillators and, and other techniques of resuscitation that are, that, are more, um, that are more available. The risk, though, is that automatic external defibrillators don't work all the time. And sometimes you really want to have an anesthesiologist right there. You want to have an entire crash cart, an entire team. Um, and I, I, don't, I don't know specifics, so I don't know whether that would have changed the outcome in, in Joan Rivers' case. Um, but there, there certainly is less of that uh, available in, in many physicians' offices than there is, say, in the operating room of a major hospital. What about age? Because age probably, it would seem to me, has something to do with your ability to recuperate. I mean, the example you gave of the drowning, it was a young girl who drowned. For That was the, when you first became interested in the... Uh, and this whole thing of resuscitating the dead. I mean, do you have a, more of an ability to collect, come back? Let's say if the same thing happened, well, Joan Rivers was 81, year, and 81 years old as opposed to a, a 20-year-old. Yeah, you definitely do uh, for a couple of reasons. One, um, younger people generally, when they have cardiac arrests, have cardiac arrests because of some environmental trauma. Not, not always, but um, young people are in accidents um, or they have drowning or near-drowning events. But their bodies and their brains 
generally speaking, are, are pretty healthy. Whereas when older people have cardiac arrests, it's not an accident. We have cardiac arrests as we get older because our hearts are getting weaker, um, our other organs aren't working as well, um, which means that whatever event led to that cardiac arrest probably has other things going on that will make it harder to revive. The other advantage that young people have, frankly, is they have young brains that are still moldable and adaptable. And if you shut off the blood and the oxygen to an 80-year-old brain for 15 or 20 minutes, that brain is not going to recover well. Um, on the other hand, a brain that's only a year or two that's still growing, that's still developing, has a much better chance of coming through that accident um, still being able to, to function and, and grow and develop. Okay, so doctor, how does that fit into the future of resuscitation? Because things are changing, as you say in your book. There are all kinds, I guess, you talk about the brain and new kinds of inventions that are on the horizon. Um, what is the future of resuscitation? <laughs> um, well, we don't really know. <clears throat> I can give you, give you one look at, at uh, what I devote a chapter in the book to, um, which I don't know if it's going to be the future, but it's really, really interesting. And that future is, is suspended animation. And researchers who are studying this, real serious resuscitation researchers don't like to call it suspended animation because as soon as I say that, your listeners are probably thinking, oh, that's, that's just science fiction. Um, and if, if you're a serious researcher doing serious work, you don't want people who are going to fund that research thinking you're, you're just watching too many science fiction movies. But the theory behind suspended animation is essentially you shut down people's metabolism. You reduce their metabolism to a very, very low level that's sometimes only a couple of percent of what it normally is. And if your metabolism is slower, then you use less oxygen. And if you're using less oxygen, you can be better able to survive situations like a cardiac arrest or a motor vehicle accident, or uh, a soldier with trauma on the battlefield, you're better able to survive those sorts of circumstances where you have a lot of blood loss or when your heart isn't pumping. So there are a lot of people now who are very, very interested in figuring out how to trick the body into a state of suspended animation. Kind of like, and I use the example in the book of, of other animals who hibernate, it's sort of like tricking the body into hibernating, tricking it into um, being convinced it doesn't really need that much oxygen and it can get along just fine um, with 1% or 2% of the oxygen that it normally uses in hopes of getting people through difficult circumstances like a tough surgery or a soldier injured on the battlefield or a, a cardiac arrest. What about more long-term kinds of things? Because I'm thinking about the baby boomers. I think there was an article in the New York Times yesterday, 8,000 uh, baby, there, we have 8,000 new baby boomers every single day here in the United States, and they're all going to be struggling to figure about this suspended animation and how can we, uh, let's say if you're diagnosed with some chronic really serious chronic medical condition that you would go into that kind of a state, you know, this is perhaps some of the science fiction stuff, but you then, until they discover some kind of a cure or uh, medication that would work to, you know, so that you could be healthy, uh, you stay in that kind of state. Can you do that? <laughs> Can you? That's a good question. Can you? To, to be clear, when we're talking about suspended animation, we're, we're really talking about extending the period that people can survive after a cardiac arrest to maybe a couple of hours at most. Short even, term, even we're that, talking. That's very theoretical. But at best, it's only a couple of hours. 
Um, what you're talking about is even more theoretical and is pretty solidly in the realm of science fiction, and that's, and that's cryonics. And I tell the story in the, the book, Shocked, of going to a conference of uh, people who believe in cryonics. They call themselves cryonauts. Um, that was held at the Alcor Life Extension Foundation um, near there in Scottsdale, Arizona. And this is a group of people who are willing to pay sometimes large sums of money to have their bodies uh, or just their brains um, preserved in, uh, cryopreserved in liquid nitrogen when they die. Uh, and in case you're wondering, to get your body preserved, uh, your whole body, that costs about $200,000. If you just want your head and your brain preserved, that's, uh, that can be had at the low price of just $70,000. $70,000, is that a one-shot deal? Or do you have the upkeep? You know, every, I would assume that you have to have some, or does that include the upkeep? And it depends, of course. I, I mean, I, is that... Something that you have to consider in the price. <laughs> <laughs> well, you do. It's it's kind of hard to pay on the installment plan yeah. once you're dead, as these people are once they sign up. But it's it's an interesting question. Um, if you pay that much money, especially if you shell out two hundred thousand um, dollars, you better hope that somebody's really going to take care of you and that somebody's going to revive you at the other end. But nobody's ever done that. Nobody's even done that to to a. a large or even a small animal in the past. So this is all very, very theoretical. And those folks who are agreeing to be frozen in liquid nitrogen when they die are taking a, a huge leap of, of faith. And uh, uh, it's a bit of a gamble. Doctor, don't they take, like, let's say, a finger or a toe or appendages and they freeze them and then they, let's say, sew them onto somebody else and they get revived when, you know, when the blood flow starts again? I mean, isn't, would that be an extension of that with your brain? Even though I know it's, in some people it is more complex than a finger or a toe, but um, is that the same principle? It's similar. Um, yeah. And to be clear, generally when, when we freeze parts of bodies, they tend to be very, very small parts. So it might be um, a cornea in an eye or maybe a heart valve. So it's very, very small pieces. Um, for things like organ transplants, a heart or a liver, um, or uh, more recently, face transplants, um, those organs, as far as I, I know, some of your listeners may know more about that science than I do, um, but as far as I know, those organs are not frozen. Um, they're preserved often in saline salt solution, um, uh, and they're kept for a very short period of time. The experience in actually freezing an organ, meaning taking it down to below 32 degrees for ice cubes form, and then thawing it and bringing it back, that's been limited only to a few that I know of, a few animal experiments um, in which uh, maybe the, the heart of a, a rat has been frozen and then implanted and was shown to be able to work for a very short period of time. So even those experiments are, are very preliminary. But most of the organ transplantation that I know of, aside from heart valves and, and very small pieces of people, there isn't actually freezing going on. There's just preservation that can work for hours, maybe a day or so at most. Um, not the kind of 500 or 1,000 year freezing that the, the cryonauts are hoping for. Yeah, so you're just talking about cooling or saline solution and 
um, that's very different than just freezing your brain for the next hundred years. Um, give us some more examples in the book. Like I, I always like to hear examples, you know, kind of describe the process, but examples of resuscitation, like the one of the girl that you mentioned in the beginning. Um, well, there, there are a lot of examples, some of which are just amazing. Um, others are, are more sobering, and, and in that category um, is, is the, the case of a woman, uh, Lorraine Bayless, who's 87 years old, uh, lived in a retirement community in Bakersfield, California, um, when she had a cardiac arrest. Uh, and uh, some of the, the local staff uh, called 911, and there was a lot of confusion uh, then about whether the staff at the, it wasn't a nursing home, it was a retirement community, but whether the, the staff at the community could administer CPR, whether they were allowed to, um, whether they should. Um, and to some degree, I guess, in, in retrospect, there was some confusion about whether uh, this patient, Lorraine Bayless, would have actually wanted um, to be resuscitated uh, or, or whether, in fact, she wanted to, to die a, a natural death. Long story short, she didn't get CPR um, until finally the paramedics arrived uh, and she was pronounced dead shortly thereafter. But it, it created a huge firestorm of, of media attention uh, that had all the, the fairly obvious elements like nursing home lets the resident die, nursing home staff refused to perform CPR until eventually it came out that, that uh, Ms. Bayless really did not, would not have wanted CPR, wanted to die a, a, national, a natural death. Um, but that story, which I, I tell in more detail, in much more detail in the book, was really interesting to me because it, it made me realize that CPR and resuscitation has become almost automatic. We assume that if anybody has a cardiac arrest anywhere, um, we really should be trying to resuscitate that person. And I'm, I'm a hospice doctor. I take care of people near the end of life, um, most of whom have decided they really want to focus on comfort care. And um, I can tell you that many people out there don't want uh, the experience of resuscitation, don't want to wake up in a, a state where they aren't aware of their surroundings, don't recognize family, um, or aren't able to take care of themselves. Um, but we don't usually think about that. We usually think about CPR as this heroic intervention that should be available to everybody. Yeah, I think you bring, we only have a few minutes left, but I'm glad you brought that up because I've done, I'm a social worker and I have done some hospice care. And I, I think that especially, as I mentioned, if you have 8,000 people a day, baby boomer becoming, uh, you know, over 65, baby boomers going into the old, I guess they don't call that elderly anymore at 65, but um, this is a huge issue, I think, this end-of-life care. And it seems to me, in my experience, and most of the doctors, when they really don't support, and I'm generalizing, I know, but they don't support patients and or families who want to stop treatment and die with dignity. And, you know, we've been talking about this actually since the 70s, but there's, they, they, so that the no, people don't end up dying um, comfortably and with support and unless they stay home. But it's very difficult to do that in institutions. It is, and, and I'm always careful not to, to put too much of the blame on, on my physician colleagues. And I think what often happens, honestly, is that um, patients don't want to bring up questions about end-of-life care, death, dying, um, being resuscitated, because they don't want their doctors to think that 
well, we don't trust them. I don't trust my doctor to, to, to take me through this, this next challenge, whatever it is. Doctors don't want to bring it up because they don't want patients to think that they're giving up on their patients. So I take care of lots of patients who um, would like to mention this to their physician but are afraid to. The physician is also reluctant. And so a lot of what I do as a hospice and palliative care doc is to increase these sorts of conversations to get people talking with their physicians and vice versa, but also with their family members. And how do you do that? You're at the University of Pennsylvania. So is this, do you do this through a lecture series? You're talking to the doctors and or the patients, or do you involve the social workers or psychologists? Or how, is it, uh, how, do, you, how do you actually achieve that? <laughs> well, if I ever do achieve it, I will let you know. I think the short answer is all of the above. Uh, I think um, often when it comes to communication about end-of-life care, physicians are, frankly, part of the problem, um, um, but aren't necessarily always part of the solution, meaning to get these conversations going, yes, you need the physician involved at some point, but a lot of people can jump jumpstart these conversations. Sometimes it's uh, doing uh, public outreach to patients and families. Um, it's encouraging advanced directives. Often it's our social workers, it's our nurses, sometimes it's our nurses' aides who spend more time with patients often than anybody else does. It's the nurses' aides who don't have the, the conversation about prognosis or, or resuscitation, but often it's the nurses' aides who listen to the patient saying again and again, gosh, I don't think I could stand another round of chemotherapy, and who nudge that patient, you know, you should really talk to your nurse about that. You should talk to your doctor about that. So I think everybody, including patients' families, have a, a role to play. It doesn't have to be just the, the physician. Yeah, I, I agree with you. I mean, that's been my experience as well. Um, this is We have to say goodbye because we only have 35 seconds left to be exact, but uh, your book, you can buy it online, bookstores everywhere. Uh, and, and is there a website that we can go to? The name of the book, again, is Shocked, Adventures in Bringing Back the Recently Dead, Dr. David Catherett. So um, where can we get the book and where can we, for more information, go to your website? Oh, my website is davidcasseret.com. And as you say, it's available for sale at Amazon and Barnes and & Noble and on all the, the major booksellers. Great. Thanks so much for being on the show this morning. Thank you. It's my pleasure. Yeah, I learned a lot as well as the listeners, and we'll have you on again in your, when you, after you're finished with your next book. I look forward to it. <laughs> I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone, and you're listening to The Catherine Zox Show on VoiceAmericaVariety.com and World Talk Radio. Hope you enjoyed the morning, and have a great week, and we'll see you next month, Wednesday. We hope you've enjoyed today's episode of The Catherine Zox Show. You can listen live every Thursday morning at 7 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America channel. Want to know more about Catherine? Visit her website at www.catherinezox.com. Be sure to join us next week for more interviews and great conversations with Catherine Zox. 